Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Hello there, Matt, how are you? I'm doing really well, thanks again for coming along and changing me about all things Mayoral, council, Dubbo, all sorts of things. It's always my pleasure. Hey, mate, did you hear during the week about the earthquake in Orange? Yeah, I did, actually. What's I'd, going on there? I don't think we felt any of it here. I, I can't remember feeling an earthquake in Dubbo since maybe the Newcastle earthquake, which obviously was a pretty big one. Yes. A lot of damage done, unfortunately, in Newcastle, and people did talk about hearing, or feeling that in Dubbo, but mm. I don't mm. think anyone in Dubbo felt the Orange no, one. I didn't feel anything, but uh, I heard about it the next morning, and it yeah. sort of came across 2.6 or a 2.8 or something like that. I'm, look, I'm not really into all the earthquake measurements. Is I think it goes for a seven or eight or a nine or something, doesn't it? So well, if you get to those numbers, you're getting into trouble. You're getting into Christchurch sort of territory. That's right. Things. things are starting to fall down around us. So. Having said that, people do hear some of the bridge construction work that's going on at the moment, and they think there's something happening, something major happening underneath the earth, because <laughs> it's amazing yeah. how far that travels. Yeah. I've had people from kilometres away from there saying there was this strange noise. It started in the morning. It was very rhythmic and it right. was pounding away. They think maybe the Phantom's here with his drums, perhaps. <laughs> but it's amazing how far Some it travels. Some 18-year-old with a very big bass beat chopping <laughs> yeah. through in the drums. I guess that's, that's right. it, yes. Yeah. yeah, but you do hear it a long way away. And probably particularly in the morning when there's not a lot of other noise, there's not the hustle and bustle of the yes, city as such. Yes, yes. Yeah, so quite incredible there. But that's not an earthquake. That's just no, that's driving pylons into the ground. Oh, look. Now, listen, uh, speaking of kids and things and talking about it, uh, during the week you were part of the new uh, Rhino Design Panel judging. So... Uh, Talk us through now. These are the little rhinos that we see poking around all over Dubbo. They're wonderful little tourist attractions in their own right. So are we repainting them or what's happening? Three of them, correct. And they've just gotten to the stage where they're a bit tired. They're out in the Mm. weather, obviously 24 hours a day. People come and have photos taken with them. They climb them. They shouldn't, of course, but they climb them. And so it's at the stage now where it's time to do a refresh. So we put out a competition amongst the schools and we got some great entries that came in. And the CEO, as part of managing that process, asked if I'd like to be one of the judges on that panel. So there were a couple of staff members that have expertise in this area to be on the judging panel. Oh, well, they've got an artistic background, have they? Or? Well, they're responsible for various parts of the cultural centre. So oh, some, okay. some people that have skills and knowledge around art yes. and obviously uh, involved in that on a day-to-day basis with council. And then we had Matt Wright, who's the chair of Spark, and that's obviously involved with art. Right. And then we also had Erin from the Chamber of Commerce, the president of the Chamber of Commerce. So I thought that'd be a nice. good little judging panel. Yes. And so, again, Murray as CEO just picked that judging panel got that together, and I was actually really impressed. It was a really tough job with any of those sort of processes. Oh, absolutely. You're looking through them all. You can see the effort. They had to put a design in. They were given blank pictures of a rhino, of both sides right. of a rhino, and then they were to put the design in. And they also had to put a story in. Oh. And one of the things that was interesting as we discussed it in the judging panel, it's interesting because you drive past a rhino maybe at 70 k's an hour as you're coming into one of the yes. entrances. You don't really have time to stop no. always and read the story. No. The story maybe has to be obvious about it, but again, some of the, the thoughts that the kids put into the stories behind it, yeah. they were quite impressive as well. So the stories about rhinos or were they just stories in general? No, about their artwork, about oh, what that artwork Okay, so the, the artwork itself, could it doesn't have to do with the Western Plains Zoo or Dubbo or anything? It could be just a general story of their life or something like that? Anything at all. So anything okay. that they, they knew how they were going to be used, so they yes. knew they were going to be used on the entrances to do a refresh. Mm. And so it was 
put whatever you want on there. Yeah, right. The rhino is your oyster as such. <laughs> and you put whatever you want on there and tell the story yeah. about that. So it was actually quite good. And it was pretty tough because I went through, we needed to pick three designs. And I yep. went through and we had a, a judging process. We had a scoring system and, and you know, went through all that process. But you probably, I, I think when I looked at the ones that I came out mm. at the top of my judging process, there were probably easily six mm. that I would have been quite happy with any of those six designs being on the rhinos. And then yep. the rest of the judges went through that process and end up with the three top designs out of that judging process. Right. And so those three winners will be announced. They get a $200 gift card oh, to those nice. three kids. So nice. yeah, it's not yes, too bad. Yes. And then we'll actually go out to some local artists to actually apply that artwork from paper right. from the kids' designs. Isn't that a the, nice idea? So, so yeah. the kids themselves don't paint it. They actually get artists to come in and paint the kids' work that they've designed. Correct. And they'll actually talk to the artist because there are some that might need to be modified yeah. or the artist might say, well – that isn't going to quite work on a rhino yep. because I need to be able to do it in a certain way. Yeah. But if you thought about just modifying it slightly, so they'll be consulted yeah, with I the real that. artist yeah, yeah, as they go through that process. And yeah. then obviously a little bit of interpretation because there was a 2D design that was mm. done for the left and the right side of the mm. rhino, but you've got to wrap it around. Mm. So what exactly do you want mm. the head to look like? Because it's yeah. only the side of the head that you've drawn there. But it's incredibly exciting too for the kids as well oh, and their families to, yeah. to know the fact that, here you go, this is my son or my daughter's artwork and you can stand as proud as punch next to it and get all the rallies around and every time you drive past you can say, that's my design. That's right. And one day they'll be winning an Archibald Prize, taking yes. home the $100,000 prize money. That's going, right. Well, my real passion started when I won a $200 gift voucher way back with Dubbo when I did a design on the bottom of a rhino, perhaps. So oh, mate, I absolutely love that. Now, Matt, I'm looking through here and I notice there's a media release that's uh, come through from Energy Co about the renewable energy zone. Now, they're talking about here the potential expansion of this zone. Now, I know we've mentioned it briefly on uh, some of our podcasts in regards to this. This is the renewable energy zone around Wellington. So what's what's the media release stating? It talks about the change of the size. And I'll read one part of the media release just so I get this exactly right hmm. from a wording perspective. The New South Wales government is proposing to amend the declaration of the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone to increase the intended network capacity of the res to support the state's future energy needs. So it is talking about a proposal to amend. The way that I've heard conversations around this over the last probably month or so it's been talked about Mm. is that it needs to happen, it's going to happen. But of course, with any of these processes, you put it out on some sort of public Mm. submissions, public exhibition. So when you say increase, what are we talking about here? Well, the current size according to the network infrastructure strategy, is three gigawatts. Mm. So that's effectively the maximum capacity that So what does generate. that look like in layman's terms for people, three gigawatts of power? And how many homes in that are we potentially trying to uh, to energise and to source from yeah. that point of view? Well, I'll, I'll go – I'll talk about that in one second, but okay. I'll just talk about the size increase first. Yeah. So it's three gigawatts at the moment. Mm. They're talking about they want to – Still under stage one, mm. they want to go to four and a half gigawatts, so mm. a 50% it's a half increase. half size again, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But then they are saying by 2038 under stage two of the res, they want to go up to six gigawatts. Okay, so, so that's double exciting. the size. Okay. Double the size. That, that is exciting, and I'll come to why it's exciting in a moment. Yeah. So what's that look like yeah, is yeah, your question yeah. then. Yep. To give you an idea, when you go down to Wellington and go cross towards Mudgee, you see 33 wind turbines. The wind turbines there are approximately 113 megawatts. Right. Now, they're older wind turbines. Keep in mind, we've talked about this before, 
they're not technically part of the res because yeah. they were built before the new transmission lines, which is mm. where the res comes into play. So think about that. So 130 megawatts for those 33. If you multiply that by 10, mm-hmm. very roughly, yep. there's a gigawatt. So we're talking about three gigawatts as the current size. Yep. Or if you talk about it with solar panels, again, on that same road across from Wellington to Mudgee, you've got a wind, uh, sorry, a solar farm there that's 200 megawatts. Right. So again, it's a pretty big area. You look out and you go, wow, a lot of solar panels there. Yep. Go next door to that and the construction has started, but there's no solar panels there yet. They're just putting the pylons into the ground at this mm. stage. And that's going to be a 400 megawatt solar farm. Okay. So go back a second. Yep. Think about that 200 megawatt solar farm, the one that's there now. So again, if you've got five of those, yep. then you've got a gigawatt. So you get an mm. idea of how mm. big a gigawatt might look, yep. how big some of those turbines. Now, the turbines that you're getting are getting larger. So the standard size now is around three megawatts per turbine, but larger turbines are being developed. You'll see four megawatts, five megawatts, Per turbine, there are large ones that have been produced, but they're probably not in common production at this stage. And these, of course, are all ones onshore. Offshore ones are typically larger, but around the Wellington area, we're not talking about offshore, not a lot down the Macquarie River, perhaps there. So it gives you an idea. One thing that's really important is that the area, as in the the surface area of what's been declared for the Renewable Energy Zone, is approximately 20,000 square kilometres, but that's not being proposed to change. Mm. So they're saying the area will stay the same, even though they'll increase the network capacity. What it will mean is you'll have more proponents doing it. The reason I get excited by Mm. this is when you start to talk about numbers. Now, in the media release, it says that the Central West Arana res would generate up to $10 in private investment in the region by 2030. And they say 5,000. That's a significant figure, isn't it? That's a big number. Unbelievable. 5,000 construction jobs at its peak. Yes. Now, we've already done some analysis from a council perspective because we know there are job shortages already. We've estimated over the next five years, there'll be a need for the Dubbo Regional Council LGA to have 6,000 additional jobs. But that's not just for the res, that's other projects. They're talking about 5,000 for the res, but the res also goes into Mudgee and Coonabarabin council areas. Midwestern Regional Council and Warren Bungleshire Council, to be technically correct. So that 5,000 is across those three areas. Yeah. But again, I think that's probably Over the next five years, you say? So well, they said by 2030 yeah, in Yeah, which is there. basically you know, five, seven years. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But the reality is, and 2038 is not a bad time frame for stage two they're talking about there, because yeah. there's no doubt about it in my mind that there is 15 years, or, or I see anyway, 15 years of construction work mm. that we'll see with his res. When someone's working on a project, they might need a few hundred for a certain project. And people have said to me, well, these renewable energy projects are no good. You only need the employees, the extra injection into the economy for a year or so while you're doing that project. And they're right for that project. Mm. But then there's another project and another project. So I think it wouldn't be surprising in 10 years' time to talk to someone who said, I came out to this area 10 years ago to work on that project over there. Mm. And then when that one finished, we went to that one and then that one and then that one. It's like a builder moving from job site to job site sort of thing. It's right. Going from job site to job site. You don't say, oh, no, there's no good having a builder because they've only got one house to build. And then once that's finished, they're done. Well, there's another house to build. And so it's a good good analogy there. So you'll see this injection. And Mm. again, we've talked about all this money is transformational for Wellington in particular – 
Dubbo's got a, a great economy. This will help Dubbo's economy, yeah. but this will transform Wellington's economy. Well, actually, you know, like, and picking up on that, from the point of view of infrastructure, like, you're talking here about a massive injection of people into this space, and professional people, a lot of these people, are, and, and well-educated from the point of view of their area of expertise. Do we have the infrastructure in place right now to, to cater for this injection of, of are we talking 5,000 people? No. <laughs> in a word. So, so is council looking at this as a priority from the point of view of, of how can we – you're talking about capitalising on this. So how does council going to capitalise on this? It's a high priority for state and federal government mm. and obviously for council as well. Now, we're not going to go and build a bunch of houses, but some of the plans for our expansion of various areas – so we talk about the northwest precinct yes. from time to time, yes. and that's an area that will expand in terms of housing – I know there are other builders, other developers trying to expand and basically accelerate their housing Mm. faster than normal. But we've also got some things that we're trying to do from a planning perspective. We want these people living in our communities. We don't want to see a mine site type environment set Mm. up outside Wellington and the people just live there and go to work and they're not coming in Mm. to the community. But one of the triggers that we might be able to pull is a temporary planning change. For example... There are shops down the main street of Wellington that are vacant. Mm. They might be owned by people who don't even live in Wellington. They've bought a retail premises or a business premises as an investment, and one day they'll get around to capitalising on that. Mm. In the meantime, it's sitting there, they're not spending money on it, and it's not being used. It doesn't look great for the main street of Wellington. Mm. But if we could do a temporary planning or temporary zoning change to allow people to live there, it's a retail shop, yes, yes, but for five years you're going to be able to live there. Or for 10 years, you can live there. And after that, the normal zoning mm. that's in that mm. applies. You can't live in a retail shop normally, mm. but you can for a certain period is, is of time. Is that something that local council can do themselves or does it have to go through some type of uh, state government authority first? We'll probably have to get some sort of permissions from the state around that. And mm. I, I don't know for sure. I know it's one of the things that we're talking about, but I imagine that some stage will have to get some approval because mm. it's really about zoning we're talking about there. And the state government normally wants to have a bit of a say or at least be aware of that zoning. Mm. But what I'm picturing is the main street of Wellington, potentially, for 10 years, might have people living in the main street. Mm. These shops, as they are at the moment, yep. are improved. Yes. The landlords improve them because they know they've got a tenant yep. there for Absolutely. the, the next 10 years. Locked in for 10 years at least, yes. And then after that, they say, well, I've done the work on that shop mm. now. It's in better condition. Gee, I wonder if the population's improved enough. There's a bit more money around. Maybe I can get that mm. leased out as a shop mm. now as it was originally yep. intended. And so to energise that main space area as well, I'd say, like oh, the main street and things like that. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Put some vitality back yeah. into there to activate the main Absolutely. street. And then you've got people living in the main street. Yeah. So that restaurant that you always wanted to open up, hmm. which wasn't going to quite make it with the number of people in the main street at night time, suddenly hmm. that now can work. So you've got a restaurant in the main well, street. Actually, no, like, in thinking about that, we've, so last week or the week before, we talked about with government, state government, and how we talk about the planning authorities and how they they look and project in regards to the growth of the areas. Are they taking this into consideration now in regards to what potentially Dubbo's going to look like over the next five to ten years in Wellington? Definitely not, no. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's one of these yeah. yeah, and as you talked about, I think it was last week, we talked about the fact that we'd been to meet with Paul Scully, the Minister for Planning, and yeah. that was one of the issues because, again, they look at things in a very pessimistic way mm. and when you've got an opportunity like this that will be exciting and already is exciting now but will be transformational and really inject some population yeah. then obviously that's going to change a whole range of things but the plan is sitting there in Sydney just look at some numbers and go mm. oh well it hasn't improved yet it hasn't improved yet and then it does oh look at that yeah. we better 
do an increase in those numbers now because it looks like there's a bit of a bump on those numbers. Yep. So again, we've talked about the REC before, the Renewables yep. Education and Activity Centre. That alone, if we can get that built and the visitation going through there again, that'll keep people mm-hmm. coming through Wellington. Mm-hmm. So whole range of exciting opportunities. What I do like is three gigawatts was fine. That yep. was always going to be okay. That was going to be good for our economy. Six gigawatts is about twice as good. Mm. So that's fantastic as well. And I just think these sort of opportunities, we've just got to make sure we seize them in every possible way we can. Absolutely. I know last week we talked about um, out there at the airport and uh, with the rural fire service out there and they had that big conference and uh, out there last week and with the, the aerial section. Well, the conferences keep on rolling, don't they? Because, of course, uh, during the week we had the New South Wales Weeds Conference. Now, I know that probably doesn't sound quite as exciting as like an aerial sort of uh, situation of Royal Flying Service, but I'm sure it would have been incredibly exciting for everyone involved in the Weeds Conference. But more particularly, the fact it brought another 300 people to Dubbo. That's what I get so excited about, I'd suggest, is that, again, we are a centre, we are a place that seems to drag in lots of people to these magnificent conferences. Yeah, you're right. And the aerial firefighting conference that was on last week that we talked about, people from around the world mm. came to that. There were about 270 people here. And again, there were at least 50 that came from overseas. I talked to some from America and some from the UK. That was fantastic. But don't downplay the 22nd New South Wales Biennial Weeds Conference. Now, of course, when you say a weeds conference, then people have some other images in their mind. Yes. And I did think about... <laughs> I was thinking about getting a T-shirt for the weeds conference, but I'm thinking uh, I could go maybe up to Byron Bay area, those sort of things, right. that type of one. <laughs> and, I, and I must admit, uh, and I had to go along and, and welcome them to Dubbo and, and officially open the conference, and I did think about all the different jokes yes. I could have about weeds. I'm sure they would have all heard them. <laughs> well, and, and I said that to them. I said... Look, I've thought about 10 different jokes that I could say, but I guarantee that everyone in this audience has heard the <laughs> yes. jokes, so I'm not even going to try. I'm not, not going to try and be original because yes. I don't think I am going to give you anything new here, so let's talk yeah. about it a bit more seriously. But you are spot on. There were probably 300 people here for mm-hmm. this conference. There were people from other states. Uh, there were a couple of people from overseas as well, okay. not as many as yeah, our, yeah. The, the large aerial fi- the sorry the aerial firefighting conference. Yes, But it's still this whole thing about continuing to roll over in the economy, continuing to inject money in the economy. And that's probably our sweet spot. I reckon maybe 400 at the most Mm. is probably the the most we can handle really well at a conference in Dubbo. If you've got 1,000 people for a conference, it's probably not our area. Mm. And people say, well, why don't you build something to accommodate that? But you're not going to get enough of them at that size Mm. to make it worthwhile, in my opinion. Mm. Whereas there are a lot of conferences around the 100 to, say, 300, maybe up to 400, Mm. a lot of those conferences, I get the lucky endeavour to be able to go along to many of these conferences and actually know that they're on, just because I've got to usually welcome people to Dubbo, whatever it might be. But you don't know about all these things happening, but it just Mm. keeps ticking over. Dubbo is central, easy to get to. We have got good conference facilities. We've got a large number of beds in terms of our hotels and motels, so that's all good. And just talking to people at this conference, Mm. just before we did the official part of it, just Mm. talking to some people in general, they love the idea of coming to Dubbo. They're going to stay a couple of extra days. They're going to duck out to the zoo. It's always a big draw card. Mm. There's things for them to do, apart from the weeds and the learning, yep. there's all of these other ancillary activities. That's exactly what you said, you know, the old uh, old idea of the fact that little fish taste good. Um, you know, the more little fish we get in the sense of the conferences of the 150, the 200, the 400, whatever, it's wonderful for us because I'd imagine, and I drove down, you know, the main street area around Cobra Street and that, 
Every uh, motel last week was booked out, so I'm assuming that they all must have stayed here in town locally and this sort of stuff. They would have gone off to the restaurants. Um, we all benefit from that. So 400 people in a place like Dubbo is still a significant input. It is. It's still significant. And you're right, with 5,000 beds, for example, mm. they wouldn't have filled up all those beds, but we've got other tourists going through yeah, on a regular absolutely. basis as well. Yeah. So it does certainly help the economy, but it just keeps ticking it over. Mm. And that's the important thing, I suppose, the important message from this is that all these little things add up to a really strong economy, but it's not diversity. Mm. Even if we did have a really big conference centre that had a thousand people come along, yeah. that might be a big part of your economy. But suddenly if you lose a major conference or mm. if that conference centre suddenly says we've got to do some refurb, we're going to close down for six months, yeah. the rest of the economy takes a big hit. Mm. The great strength of Dubbo is that we've got so much variety mm. in all the different aspects to our economy. So you've got little conferences coming along, yep. ticking away. You've got the retail sector. You've got the public service, the employment around that. You've got the education. So you've got all these different aspects mm. that make up this economy, and that's what you want. So predominantly, are most of these conferences being held through the DRTCC down there, or where else do they go to? You've got the RSL Club. Yes. You've got the Rhino Lodge, which is owned by the RSL Club. Yes. You've got the DOTCC. Sometimes you've got even schools, for example, might run a conference that's very specific to education. So mm. they might run something. It might only be 50 people there, but they might come and use the yep. hall in school holidays, for example. Yep. There are a lot of facilities. When you start to sit back and think about yeah, it, yeah. a lot of facilities and a lot of people that can actually provide catering for these facilities. And then yep. obviously motels. You've got rooms in motels. They try and yep. keep them all that one motel that might be nearby, but that might not always be possible. But we've already talked about it before with the RFS, with yes. all the people that stay at the RFS, so they can hold conferences out there and have mm. uh, 127 beds, for example, 124 mm. it might be, I think, mm. where people can stay out there. So you've got all these different mm. avenues there, mm. and again, it all just adds up to a really good outcome for yeah. our economy. It's magnificent. Now, last Thursday night, Matt, uh, you had a number of standing committees. Um, you had to uh, to discuss some interesting little uh, options that came up here. Now, just talk about very quickly, uh, what is a standing committee again? Just to refresh our uh, listeners what a standing committee is. So we've got three standing committees that we have at council. And the standing committees, it gives you the opportunity to discuss things in a less formal environment. So it looks and feels like a council meeting, mm. but they're less formal. The rules of debate are a little bit different. You can have multiple goes at the debate during a standing committee meeting. Council meeting, you can only have one go at each yeah. topic. So little things like that. You can get larger presentations that people can come mm. and give. It might be various experts or people from the public can come and give at standing committee meetings. And the idea is that you don't make decisions at standing mm. committee meetings. Mm. You make recommendations, which then two weeks later go through to the council meeting for the final resolution. So it gives you a chance to debate something, to think about it, mm. go away for a couple of weeks. People might give you some feedback from the community and then a final resolution. So made. is there a set agenda for each standing committee or can you bring uh, new agenda items to it? The new agenda items are brought. There are some fairly standard items in there, yeah. but there's three different standing committees. The Infrastructure Planning and Environment Committee is yep. one standing committee. And again, the name kind of gives you an idea mm. of what the standing committee is about. The other, so, and, and Josh Black is the 
chairman of that particular standing committee. Right. There's the culture and community committee, and Jess Goff is the chairperson of that particular committee. Yep. And then you've got the corporate services committee, and Damien Mahan is the chairperson of that particular committee. Right. So again, the names give an indication of the topics that might come through each of those three committees. So speaking of infrastructure, it looks as though uh, at the infrastructure meeting there, you, you spoke about Saxa Road and the Cumberbella Crossing. So what's what's happening there? Yeah, so this is one that we've been working on for some time. The Coombabella Crossing in the past has Coombabella. been... Coombabella. I say Coombabella. There is Coombabella. Coombabella is what I've normally heard the, you the locals potato, talk about. You say potato. I say potato. That's right. So it's a crossing that essentially was a culvert in uh, Creek, Mitchell Creek it's in. Hmm. And that's been serving mainly its purpose for decades now. Hmm. But with all the flooding that we've had over the last year, it got to the point where that was crumbling apart. There's a very temporary process that goes next door to that where you're kind of going through the creek bed a bit. Yeah, sounds exciting get, if you want to be four-wheel driving or oh, something. Oh, yeah, yeah, we had to get permission from the fisheries to actually have that allowed oh, as really? a crossing. Okay. Yeah. yes. So it's not great. We've actually said to the community out there, yes, we've heard you, this isn't mm. good enough, we need to do something better than this, and this is the tricky part. So mm. the recommendation we had to make at the committee meeting on Thursday night was about where we're going to go to next with this. Mm. We could spend a little bit of money, not much. Basically, it would be basically covered by the the floods recovery process from the state government Mm. if we just said, let's put back what was there before. That process might have cost around about $470,000, and we'd pretty much get that covered by the state government. So the net cost to council would be... Pretty minimal. Yeah. I, I, I want to say zero, but it wouldn't be quite zero. There'd be is it, some is little Is it going to fix the problem, though? Well, it will fix the problem in dry times. Yes. And what happens in floods again? We're back to square one again? or And they might have a flood once every 10 years, say, okay. but it's a crossing that's not great. We've mm. been out to the hall out there, and we've talked to the community, and we've said we need to work on a better solution. Now, everyone we talked to in state government, both the last state government and the new one, talks about betterment. Mm. When you're recovering from a flood we think it's worthwhile to make things better so that it can withstand the next flood in better condition. Let me guess. This is like the old insurance claim scenario. Is, is, is that, that right in the sense that it will only give you enough money to cover what is currently in existence? That's exactly right. But the governments, both the governments have said, if you can put an argument to say that by making it better, it's going to save us money in the long run, then we'll listen to that. In the past, no. So the state government would say, that bridge or mm. that culvert you had there, 470 you replace that mm. coal, you get 470. You put something else there, mm. we'll probably give you nothing. Mm. So that's a so challenge. What, so what, the new government is prepared to turn around and offer more money for this, based on their betterment programming? Correct. The last government said that they were working on betterment, and the new government has said the same thing, which okay. is fantastic. Yep. Now, it's not a guarantee. When you fix something that was damaged by a flood, for example, mm. then you're not guaranteed the money, but you're pretty much assured the money will be there mm. to put back what was there. Betterment funding, you've got to go through a process to try and get some of that betterment right. funding. And in this particular scenario, we don't want to hold up this process because we think it's in bad enough condition and the local residents have put up with it for long enough. Mm. Having said that, there are a lot of other people. It's a regional road. There are a lot of other people that use this particular road Mm. as well when it's in good condition. Mm. So it's a bit unfair on the regional council. So the proposal that currently stands is the fact that uh, the standing committee has recommended that it's fixed back up to its standard it was. Uh, is, is that right? Spending the four hundred seventy thousand dollars, whatever it is. No, so that was part of the debate on Thursday right, okay. night. So but then we got to the stage of saying, no, we think 
the community deserves better out there, despite okay. the fact it's a valid argument to say, why are the residents of the Aboriginal Council paying for this when people outside the LGA are using this road more than people inside the LGA? Mm. Mm. But again, it's an important regional road, and we're pretty confident we'll get some money from the state government for it. But despite that, mm. we'll go ahead and do something. Part of the debate was the type of bridge that we would use to replace it. Mm. So you've got modular proprietary bridge, and right. so that's basically something like a Meccano set. In, okay. I mean, overly simplistic here. Like sort of drop it in sort of thing. For well, now you or... buy the bits, and then you get someone else to oh, come right. along and put it together. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair So enough. that's one option yeah. for a bridge. Another is, is that one, the cheapest option? Or no, it... it wasn't actually. Another option is to do big box culverts. So you'd often, right. or not often, you'd sometimes put a culvert in to get some water flowing through an area. Yep. This is with big culverts right. and you put them in and that basically forms the basis of your bridge the right. culverts so water can still flow through and then you put a deck on top and you've got a bridge I think we might have one of those out of Fergrove you've got a, you've got yes. a, a very small version of one yes, of those yes, that's exactly okay. right. I, yeah. I know what that is now yes. so think about that one you've got at Fergrove yes. and double the height for example yeah, right, and okay. make it a fair bit longer and yep. you've probably got something that you might yeah, see right. there that one is cheaper Yes, definitely right, okay. cheaper and effective. It works well. That's right. Will it work bigger? Yes, it will. But mm. again, a couple of little interesting parts around that. And the third one would be a normal design and construction. So you'd go to tender and say, "We need a bridge to go from there to there." You do the design. You construct it. Tell mm. us how much you're going to charge us to do mm. that, and we'll tell you whether you get the tender or not. Councillors on Thursday night in their recommendation to council said, "Let's forget about option one. Yep. The modular bridge doesn't sound like it's going to be a great solution because." the person installing it says, oh, there's a problem with the bits you bought over there. The person who you bought the bits off goes, no, no, the installer doesn't know no, what they're yes, doing. Yes, okay. We didn't yep. think that would be a great option. No. The culvert, we thought that sounded pretty good because mm. it was about close enough to a million dollars cheaper oh, than wow. the design construct. So we're talking about maybe $2.7 million for a design yep. construct, one point six five, And tends to go in pretty quickly. It, it is my experience what happened out there at Fergrove, I know. Yes, except at the moment there's a huge delay on the larger box culverts. So there's about 20 weeks. So if we ordered some box culverts today, like smaller box culverts you can get, the larger ones we'd need out there, if we order them today, it's 20 weeks before we'd even see them turn up, before you even start the job. Oh, goodness me. So, yes, I normally would have said you're spot on that Mm. they are quicker. (laughs) Yes. But the approximation, again, this is in our staff report that went through to the committees, 54 weeks for box culvert solution, 57 weeks for design and construct, so Mm. pretty much the same. Mm. But the 1.65 million versus the 2.7 million Mm. is attractive. There's a little bit more roadworks that's needed for the box culvert on the approaches Mm. as opposed to the Mm. bridge, but still that's probably going to be cheaper there. So what council recommended in the end was rather than restrict ourselves, the sensible thing to do would be to go out to tender and say, we'll accept a tender for a design construct Mm. or a box culvert. So if your specialty is box culverts, put the tender in. Yep. Give us your price, give us your time frame. Yeah. If your specialty is design and construct, then put that in. If you can do both, put two mm. tenders in. Mm. So that way, councillors believed they're not going to miss out on the best option rather than picking now, based on a staff report, exactly which way they want mm. to go. Bottom line is, it's still over a year away yeah. before we'll get that Is there anything happening solved. out of Saxa Road before then? Is there any sort of temporary measures that the council can actually do now? Or Only that little creek crossing that goes down <laughs> okay. beside the current culvert, right. which is pretty hairy going keep through Keep your four-wheel there. drive skills up for a while yet. Yeah, that's right. And, and cars can go across, but we're really mm. trying to keep large vehicles, trucks, that type of thing, non-local okay. traffic off that area there. So we were hoping to have it done sooner, mm. but it's going to take some time. And in the meantime, we'll do it if we get the money from the state government or not, but we're really focused hard on that betterment process.
Now I know uh, a couple of uh, podcasts, Matt, uh, back Matt, we, uh, we announced the fact that Bill Gravier is taking over the running of the Dubbo Aquatic Centre, or not just the Dubbo Aquatic Centre, the Dubbo Regional Aquatic Centre, of course, which is Wellington, Geary and Dubbo. Now at uh, one of the standing committee uh, meetings there during the week, uh, it looks like representatives turned up to have a chat. So what they have to say? We have a Dubbo Aquatic Centre working party and that's got representatives uh, from council staff, from councillors, swimming groups that are on there and they talk about various things in relation to the pools and right. where they're headed and various proposals, etc. But Belgravia, representative from Belgravia, came along to that meeting. Now, yep. they don't take over. The pool hasn't opened for the summer yet, but mm. obviously they're getting ready to take over and mm. getting their staff employed. They're probably advertising out now. I haven't seen any, but I'm sure they're out there advertising for staff, etc. Mm. But they thought it was important to come along and meet some of the staff and, mm. well, they've already met some of the staff at some of the councillors, some of the, the actual swimming clubs themselves. Okay. And I wasn't at that particular meeting, but certainly the feedback from that meeting was very much that Belgravia are very invested in good outcomes for the people that use the pool. Mm -hmm. And they really stressed that at that meeting in the discussion we had on Thursday night around that particular meeting. They really stressed that. And sure, they've got an amount they're being paid. Mm -hmm. They've got a contract in place to go and do a job. But uh, I think people were impressed with Mm -hmm. how focused they are on doing an exceptional job. That's good. And they want to increase the visitation. They want to do an exceptional job. They want to have other pools around the nation have contracts and say, hey, use Belgravia because, gee, they do a great job. They really want to make sure that those swimming clubs are happy, that the users of the pool are happy. So it'll be an interesting process. Mm. The pool has been out in external hands before, and Mm. I think it did a fine job in that scenario. And again, this is a different company with a whole lot more expertise, so hopefully we'll get some great outcomes. Have there been any uh, questions, um, I suppose, uh, raised back to council in regards to Belgravia taking over? Has anyone uh, anyone come to council with any concerns in regards to Belgravia taking over? I haven't heard any, and not everyone comes to me for every problem, but Mm. certainly I haven't heard any issues or any complaints around that. It's probably more likely that people will have some issues if they take it over and something doesn't work the way they want it to, Mm. or they see some experience which isn't perfect or ideal. We'll probably hear more once they actually take over and start Mm. the management process. But at this stage, Mm. the information we talked about, the fact that we're going to save money by doing it externally, and there was a competitive process and people put it in and so I think people trust mm. the fact that councils were going to do the best thing for the community that's part of our job that's part of what it says in the local government act that's right. you meant to do the best you can for the community so I think people are pretty comfortable with that mm. but let's wait and see that's right. when the season starts well, so so they take over basically for this summer that's they're pretty much going to kick off around what September or something is that how it kicks off or? when when the pool opens that's right yeah. when the three pools open technically the contract starts on the 1st of July but obviously we don't open mm. the pool on the 1st of July but yeah basically from this season on away they go and uh, it'll be interesting to see how they go. I've got confidence in the decision that council has made. I've got confidence in them doing a good job. I'm I'm a bit excited to see what they can do, to see Mm. if they can improve They're they're a multinational operation, aren't they? Like, this isn't their only operation. They're all over the place, aren't they? No, that's right. They're in Australia and New Zealand, are the ones that I know about. I don't know about anywhere else, but certainly they've got Mm. a number of pools under management. So you hope they've learnt the process and what to do with some other mm. pools and when are a guinea pig we hope we're at the end yeah. of the line being a polished process I love the way you put that Australia Day now this year Matt uh, on Australia Day we had a little bit of a change uh, Wellington we had the night time before so that was on the 25th of January we had the celebrations Dubbo 26th of January stayed the same day has there been a proposal put forward here in regards to changing uh, the Dubbo 
Australia Day to the 25th. Was this come up at the part of the standing committee meeting? Was that what's happened there? Yeah, you're spot on. And when we did the Wellington and Dubbo, or not really a Dubbo change, a subtle change with Dubbo, but when we changed mm. the actual timing of the Wellington one, for example, at the time, we would have changed Dubbo and Wellington, I think. I mean, it would have been a council decision, but I got the mood from the councillors that they would have probably changed both. Mm. But of course, we weren't allowed to. We actually approached the Department of Home Affairs and the message that we got was that you can't have a citizenship ceremony on any other day but the 26th of January as part of your Australia Day celebrations. Right. Can you do it, uh, have an Australia Day the night before and then citizenship? No, you couldn't. Mm. You had to. If you had citizens that were going to or, or people that were going to be conferred as new citizens around that date. They had to be on Australia Day. had to be on the 26th. Now, so we argued the toss a little bit for a yep. few months with the Department of Home Affairs. We got a negative. So Wellington didn't have any conferees for the date, so we could change that, but we couldn't change Dubbo. Subsequently to that, with a couple of weeks' notice before Australia Day, Andrew Giles, the Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs, made an announcement that you could hold your event up to six days before the 26th or six days after the 26th. Right, yes. So that was fantastic. Like the 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so it is. But it was too late. We'd yes. already put our plans in place, everything was happening. So we said, hmm. great, we'll do that this year. We'll do a survey and we'll come back and then decide what we do for 2024 after hmm. that. Hmm. The survey's been done now. People in the community have been asked, Dublin Wellington hmm. people have been asked. And so that information came to council for yeah. a decision to be made around what do you want to so do for 2024. That's the survey results. So that's an interesting one. So what was the general feedback from the survey? Well, not as strong as I would have liked, and okay. that probably made it a bit tougher for councillors. Mm. And here's an interesting philosophical question. Mm. When you go out to the community and say, please complete this survey, do you base your entire decision on the survey results, mm. or do you use that as part of the process in making a decision? Now, keep in mind that we've got 55,000 people mm. in Dubbo and Wellington, mm. 109 people completed the survey. Okay. Now, you yep. still can yep. get a good representation for what a community wants out of a small sample space, yep. but it's not a huge sample space for something that's mm. pretty important, obviously. Mm. So it's one of those things. You want to listen to the community, but if everything you did was by survey and that's all you did, yes. then forget about councillors. You just have an electronic referendum-type process where you just vote on every mm. decision of council mm. for the broader public and that's how you make decisions. One of the interesting philosophical points of view that I put forward for a democratically elected group, state, federal, local, whichever level you want to pick, what you're doing is you're really saying, we're entrusting you, our elected representative, to read all the information, to Mm. be absorbed in the information, to talk to people, to meet with people, to understand the information Mm. and listen to feedback. Mm. And with all of that information, make the best decision for the community. Make a decision. That's it. That's right. So in this scenario, the feedback that came back from the community was very different in the Wellington community and the Dubbo community. Okay. And I'd say part of that reason was that you had the Wellington community with the experience mm. of having a different day and the Dubbo community didn't have a different day. So the Wellington community were generally quite happy with the 25th as an evening? Not uh, quite, not quite. Okay, so it's the opposite way. <laughs> no, no, no. They were happier than Dubbo, but they still weren't overwhelmed. So, right. for example, in Wellington, 33% of people said they preferred the event the night before. Right. 63% said the day of, and we had some other options as well. But yep. so basically, two thirds said do it on the 26th, yep. one third said do it the night before. Yep. So you How many look people at, we have there, though? What was the, our number of Wellington 
people who do, do we actually know the the breakdown there of how many people in Wellington actually out of those figures were the ones was it a hundred people was it twenty people thirty people a hundred and nine people in total responded to the survey thirty one point two percent from Wellington sixty two point four percent from Dubbo so thirty one point two percent of hundred nine so a little bit over thirty probably thirty four with a quick calculation there. And 6.4% from other areas as well. Oh. Yeah, so people okay. from other areas want to contribute as well. well. Good on them. Uh, so effectively, when you've got those numbers there, then mm. you look at that and you say, well, it's obvious the community doesn't want it the night before, so let's put it there. But again, your point, mm. you've only got 30 or so people yep. who are actually voting on that. Do we base our entire decision for that community on, on that? People. Yeah. Now, in Dubbo, it was a little bit different. Right. Only 6.7% of people said they wanted it on the 25th. Right. 87% said they wanted it on Australia Day, and there were 4.5% that said they wanted it on the nearest Saturday, for oh, example. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, again, in Dubbo, they didn't really have the opportunity to yep. experience that. Yep. So, here's the, the tough question that mm. councils had to face on Thursday night. Mm. We've got the survey results. They're not overwhelming in support of the, the day before. In Dubbo, in particular, but in Wellington, it was okay. You take that information and then you look at what we were trying to do. What we were trying to achieve was we wanted to say we want the community more unified. Mm. We want the community to be at one with our Aboriginal past and our current environment that we have with a melting pot, including people from all over the world. You've got Aboriginal people going back 65,000 years. You've got settlement going back to 1788. Mm. You've then got people that have been here for five minutes. Mm. We want that melting pot of all these people together in one big happy family. And the idea, councillors spoke about it when we made the decision previously, was to say, we recognise the 26th. And the 26th is still an important day in the history of this nation. Let's not forget that. Mm. But we also recognise the fact that it's painful for some Aboriginal Mm. people. Mm. So when we want our community come together, having an event on the 26th maybe isn't the best. Mm. The night before, mm. well, it still recognises the date is significant, but it just gives Aboriginal people the chance to come along. Yep. In Wellington, yep. there was a large Aboriginal crowd there at the event. Isn't that interesting? Okay. In the past, on Australia Day, because yep. obviously some people call it Survival Day, yep. in the past, you might have had very few Aboriginal people there. Yeah. So I think that was a bit of an indicator to me that, hey, we're on the right track. I think it's interesting too, and it's worthwhile the discussion, because look, we're prepared to change the, the uh, at least one word out of our national anthem to try to become more encompassing of all folks. It's, it's interesting too when we're looking at, say, Australia Day, are we focusing here, and this has always been, I think, part of the, the, the current debate of the discussion, should we be focusing more on the actual nature of what the day should be celebrating as opposed to the date? You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it's, this is part of the reason I suggest maybe why council, and I suggest Dubbo City Council, Dubbo Regional City Council, be one of many, I think will be having this discussion to say the fact that, look, if, if we move it one day or two days, and now, of course, Minister said, well, you've got 12 days to play in here if you want to. It's almost like they're saying to everybody now, look, play around with this. It's it's Australia Day from the point of view of the celebration. Let's celebrate Australia as a nation. If we can move away from the nature of the date of the 26th of January, and as you say, there's a lot of uh, mixed emotions around that date, um, if we can take it away from that and focus on what it should be trying to represent, isn't that really what we should be trying to achieve? And I think you hit the nail on the head that what we want to do is say, isn't this a great country? Mm, isn't it great to be yes. here in Australia? It's fantastic. Yep. I was very careful in my language when we talked about the 2023 event, 
that I didn't say the word celebrate. Mm. In the same way that you might have Anzac Day mm. or Remembrance Day, yeah. you don't really call it a Remembrance Day celebration because what you're really doing is acknowledging and mm. recognising what happened on Remembrance Day or what happened on Anzac Day mm. and a lot of people died. Yeah. And so with that same thought in my mind, mm. without going and doing exhaustive consultation with the Aboriginal community, I thought the word celebration, if we're trying to bring the entire community along together, mm. was the wrong word to use. So I started talking about it being a recognition of yeah. what a great nation Australia is yeah. now, yeah. recognition of Australia Day, because you can still be someone who is not happy with what happened and the way it happened on Australia Day, the, yeah. the, the reason we have Australia Day. Yeah. But you can still recognise the day. So you yep. might want to celebrate that you feel that your country was invaded or that your group survived. Yep. You might want to celebrate that, but you can recognise that. Mm. So for all of those reasons, mm. that was where we came about. And it was a fascinating discussion that we had. Mm. And the community, we had lots of feedback from the community. So what was the end result ways. then? And we've sort of talked philosophically about it. So yeah. at the end of the day, what was the end result? Well, it was interesting. Because we had one councillor away on Thursday night and so in the end the debate went back and forth mm. and the idea of having both events was the first proposal put forward, both events the day before. So the, the evening before, 6.30pm yep. on Thursday, the 25th of January, 2024. So that was the proposal put forward. That was the proposal put forward by yep. one of our councillors and you had the next three days to just go on a long weekend mm. Luckily, Australia lands on a Friday next year, so you had the three days to go and do that. That was debated back and forth a fair bit, yeah. and we had something that's not that common in council meetings. We had a foreshadowed emotion. One one councillor said, "I want to put a motion up," but and I was chairing this meeting. I don't normally chair this meeting, but hmm. Damien Marm was coming in by a video conference. I was chairing it, and so the motion wouldn't have been allowed. The councillor that put this foreshadowed motion forward was smart enough to realise that hmm. it wouldn't be allowed because it was. Part of it was a direct negative of one of those. But you can foreshadow a motion, and that means that you're saying to the rest of your councillors, if you defeat this current motion in front of you, then I've got something that they'll put in in its place. You can't have it debated during the process because it would be a direct negative. So in other words, it would be, I want to paint the wall black, and someone else says, well, I move an amendment, we paint it white. Well, mm. hold on, you can't have those two there, mm. complete opposites. Yep. You're voting on one thing, not, not both. Correct. Yep. So... The first proposal put forward, the first motion put forward, was both events the night before. And that was debated back and forth. Mm. In the end, the vote went 5-4 against. Right. So to stay with the 26th of January here in Dubbo? Well, no. That means there's no motion there. Oh. So we've got no decision made at right. this stage. But because one of the councillors had foreshadowed a motion, right. then after that was defeated, then that motion comes forward. Right. That councillor then says, right, I've now got a motion. And the motion was to do it the same in 2024 as was done in 2023. Oh, I get you now. Okay, so now I see. So because, of course, it, it didn't – because, of course, the motion was about saying let's put them both on the night before. Correct. So, therefore, if it goes down 5-4 on that, there's no motion put forward up until the foreshadowing motion to keep it as is. Correct. So okay, gotcha. then the motion put forward, the foreshadowed yep. motion, which now could become the motion, was put forward to say – Let's have Wellington Australia Day the night before yep. and let's have Australia Day in Dubbo on the day of, on the 26th. Right. And so that was debated back and forth. In the end, the vote was 8-2, sorry, 7-2 in favour of that. Right. So that then becomes the recommendation that will go through to council in two weeks' time. Now, the reason we have talked about it hmm. for some time, but the reason I really like to talk about it and get it out there in the community is because, hmm. and it was mentioned at the council meeting, there's two weeks now. The community's got two weeks to talk to councillors, to send their mm. views, mm. to 
ring them up, send them an email, whatever, and have a discussion about it and tell the councillors what you think about that because in two weeks' time at the council meeting, that's when it will be the final resolution Mm. as to exactly what happens in Australia. Because, of course, right now it's just a recommendation. Correct. That's right. So, again, one of the things that's good about the committee meetings is the recommendations will often be similar, especially when it's a unanimous vote, Mm. often be similar Mm. to what comes through to council. When it's a bit tighter and it's a bit like this one, Mm. then a few phone calls to some councillors might change their mind, change their opinion on that. Yes. Speaking of all things uh, council base and things like that, I'm noticing here that uh, your Merrill Memo during the week uh, discussed the nature of the role of the councillor and the mayor, or more particularly, what entails the job description of both. It's interesting. So talk me through it. What are the job descriptors of being a councillor? Well, there isn't one, and that's the problem. There's no job (laughs) description as such. Right. And I know in our modern... You guys get, get a job description as well as a mayor? Well, no, no, and I'll, I'll get to that. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll do right, the yeah. best I can to tell you. Make it up as you go along sort of thing. <laughs> well, sometimes I'm sure some <laughs> do. But it's interesting because in our modern employment framework, the job description is incredibly important. And yes. I don't know any yes. employees that would say we don't have a job description in our yeah. job. Yeah. It's, it's really important. Normally when you apply for a job, you have to sort of refer to your job descriptions as part of the reasons why you're applying. You've got to answer these certain questions based on those. Yeah, so it's interesting. But in council, the best I can find is – and I do talk about the Local Government Act a little bit. It is my go-to because, oh, again, that's, that's the where you work. It's well, part of the, the whole deal, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's what we act under. Mm. And in that, you have got 106 words that describe the role of a councillor. If you look oh, at Section generous. 232. Yeah, not much, is it? No. So Section 232 sentences. for the people that want to read that. Yeah. And the mayor's role is under Section 226. That's 234 words. So again, oh, wow. So you get a double up. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot, <laughs> but something that gives you some idea. Yes. Now, it's the best thing. It's not really a job description. It says the roles of the mayor, but you, you might follow that. One of those roles, which is interesting, and it has been over the last few weeks for a few activities I've been undertaking, if you look at Part M of Section 226, right. it says that the role of the mayor is, and I quote, <laughs> to represent the council on regional organisations and at intergovernmental forums at regional, state and commonwealth level. How will you do that? Well, and that's exactly right. I do do that, and I think it is an important part of it. And I think one of the things that you look at is, is there any benefit to the community? Is Mm. there any reason you would do that? Gone, long gone are the days, thankfully, where you knocked on a minister's door and said, hey, buddy, I've got this great little project, sure thing, we'll give that the green light and away it goes. And, And when I say... Long gone in those know, days. I've seen a little bit of New South Wales state government. Certain premiers have gone down for some things like that, haven't they? Well, and that was the point I was going to make. <laughs> Maybe it still does happen here That's and right. there, yes. but people get found out. And mm. Daryl Maguire, obviously, that probably was the way some of those funding processes Unfortunately, occurred. true, yes. What everyone wants is a much fairer, more open mm. process. But again, being involved in those various forums and learning and understanding things. And again, I have an example from my previous time as mayor, we were trying to get about $3.5 million in funding from the federal government for Barden Park. Right. We had $1.27 million from the state. We had $535,000 from us. And we put an application in for three point four seven from the feds. Hmm. And we missed out. And so we'll be disappointed. And we thought, that's not great. What are we going to do about it? Hmm. We could have packed up our bat and ball and said, well, hmm. we'll move on to another project. Yep. But what we did is I actually went to Simon Crean's office in Canberra And I didn't sit down with Simon Crane. I sat down with his staff Mm. and I said, look, we thought this was a really good project. We thought it was ticked all the boxes. It Mm. was going to be a great regional process. 
where do we get it wrong? What can we do? There's going to be another round of this funding. Help us out here. And we learned a few things during that process. One thing that I certainly learned was that the person we were dealing with that was making the initial recommendation for Mm. this to the minister was a person that had grown up overseas, had spent not a long time in Australia and didn't Mm. really understand Mm. the nature of regional areas. Mm. When we talk about Barden Park being a great facility for people from the region, from the Berks, the Baronas, the Cobars, all sorts of places, he initially thought that they'd go to their own athletics track. Of course, they have plenty of those out there. Why wouldn't they (laughs) go to those instead of coming all the way into Dabo? As you say, no idea. No. Mm. He did talk about the fact that he did understand regional because he'd been from Canberra to Cowra for a wine weekend, so he got regional. Mm. And oh, we well, that's 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 how you do it, don't you? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I did want to get him out to our real region, but in the end we got a map out and showed him a few things there. And what we learned from that process yes. was that we had to do a couple of things. We had to do a business case, spend some money on a business case before mm. that had been an application by our staff to demonstrate some of the things that were blatantly obvious to us, but mm. the business case for the regional involvement of people around the region, mm. and also just demonstrate the lack of facilities elsewhere, how this would be used mm. by the region. It wasn't a double facility, mm. it was a regional facility. Mm. So again, we got an understanding, got an understanding where he was at, we went away, did the business case, put the application in, of course, we got that $3.47 million, yep. and we've now got that wonderful facility that we've got the there. The thing I find that really interesting about that story, Matt, is, is that the learning curve... And you say the fact that there's no real job descriptions set aside there for the mayors and for the councillors. But along the way, you have to learn all of this. Um, this is part of that rapid learning curve, I'd suggest, that anyone who goes into local government is going to have to experience uh, pretty quickly. So therefore, to go down to Canberra and to meet people who are uh, in the federal government and go down to Sydney to meet the people in state government and have those conversations... Boy, oh boy, you cannot buy that uh, from the point of view of experience in that. That's something they have to just go and do yourself, don't you? Well, you do, but I was lucky when I first got on the council that we had two people that I was served under as mayor, if you like. Mm. We had both Alan Smith and Greg Matthews. And so you're learning from them, you're listening. Mm. I think it would be very difficult for anyone, and I've met some people who have done it in the past, I know some Mm. people right now, Mm. that they get elected to council and then go straight into the mayor's role Immediately. So yeah. they're basically first down the job and they're a councillor and then they're a mayor. Yeah. And you can still do the job. I'm not saying that it's it's not a possibility to do the job, yeah. but you've got to learn all those things from scratch. Yeah. Whereas I know when I came along as mayor, mm. I already had about seven years worth of experience, again, under Greg and yes. under Alan. So I had a fairly good understanding of a lot of those things and you, you knew a lot of those things. So mm. it wasn't like, oh, what, I've got it's to go like to the, Sydney. the mentorship sort of thing happening there. Well, I suppose to a certain extent it is, but you also watch what they do and learn Mm. from other people and then you can apply your learnings from that to then your role. Mm. And sure, you shape it and develop it as you Mm. go forward, but you've still done some of that beforehand. Mm. So I think that's fine, but again, it is interesting. People, I maybe bore people a little bit sometimes when I refer to the Act a bit, but that is our Bible. That's our, it's not just our job description for our little parts of it, but Everything that happens when people say, can you fix the Reserve Bank interest rate? I go to the Government Act and I can't find anywhere <laughs> yes. that it gives us the power to do that. So that's the sort of thing that well, I do Well, when you work out how to do that, mate, let me know first, will you? <laughs> now, speaking of Canberra, um, you went to Canberra during the week. You flew down there and uh, you attended the Regional Capitals Australian Board meeting. Now, the Regional Capitals Australia 
that's, that's a group that uh, you're part of, and there was a board meeting down in Canberra uh, with this group. So I suppose, look, the first most obvious question, I know you have a lots and lots of different groups that you attend and, and, and be part of, but this group, I don't think I've come across them yet. The Regional Capitals Australia Group, who are they? So it's a group that's been put together many years ago, and the whole idea is that if you look at the regional capitals across the nation, mm. then they're comparable to a Sydney or a Melbourne. Mm. So to give you an idea, there's 51 regional capitals, identified right. regional capitals. Okay. So Dubbo is obviously one of those. Yep. And we're talking about cities. We're talking about these places that have act. to be above a certain amount of population or? Uh, well, they've got to be a city for a start. Yep. But they also need to be acting in some way in their region as the local capital. Mm. And mm. it's a pretty easy example to give for Dubbo mm. where we've got people in Walgut and Canamble and mm. Gilgandra and Narromine who gravitate to Dubbo for their larger services or their health facilities and it's a natural place for them to go as their capital. The same as we might go to Sydney as our state capital, mm. people come to Dubbo as their regional capital. So mm. think about that, yep. replicated in 51 places across the nation. Yeah, right. But when you look at the population, you've got a home of those 51 capitals mm. of about 4 million people. So it's not quite a Sydney or a Melbourne, but you yep. can see the point of it that you put all them together and you've got a Sydney or a Melbourne influence, mm. if you like. Mm. Now, one of the things that we've talked about in the past with regional capitals is that we don't get the same amount of money spent across all of those from the federal government as they might spend on a Sydney or a Melbourne. Yes. So the expenditure on those cities in one location is more than the expenditure on those 51. So that's one of the things we often lobby for. Yep. But we've got some different things in there in terms of we believe the value to the community, to the overall nation, if you like, $225 billion those capitals contribute to the annual GDP. Wow, okay. But we've yep. also got a more relaxed lifestyle and yep. low congestion and affordable living. So there's advantages to them. Mm. But we will get together and decide on policy positions and then mm. sometimes we'll also get together with polys. Mm. So that was the board meeting we had in Canberra. So you're part of the board of this group, aren't you? Correct. So there's, there's 21 cities that actually pay to be a member of this. Right. There are 51 identified capitals. Some of the other ones say... We're happy for the other ones to carry the load and pay the right, money. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. so they're not all members, but then you've got a board yep. that's elected from that. So I'm on the board there, yep. and so we have board meetings. But again, the main thing that is to have policy positions mm. that are common across many of those cities, not all mm. of them, because you're hard pressed to find something that's in common with all 51. Mm. But you might have a policy position. So, for example, we talked about airports at the board meeting during the week, and our policy position around that, around funding of airports. Mm. Not all 51 of the cities have an airport that's got regular passenger traffic, RPT, going to all of those cities. Okay. But a number of them do have. And when some of the funding has been removed, some of the funding programs have been removed, yep. many of those councils own those airports. And so we see that as a bad thing. So we've got a policy document on trying to get additional funding for airports as one example. But it's, yep. again, things that we can then go and pitch to police. So that board meeting was on during the week. Sometimes we'll have those via video conference, but this particular week we went across to Canberra for that board oh, meeting. Excellent. Now, while you were down there uh, as part of the uh, board meeting, you uh, you caught up with the Senator, the Honourable Jenny McAllister, the Assistant Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Now, of course, I would imagine what's happening with the res out here, she would be a very interesting person to speak to. I'm sure she'll be interested in speaking to you as well, I would suggest. You're actually right. I was pretty impressed with Jenny. I haven't met her before, so mm. it was the first meeting with Jenny. Now, we did meet with Regional Capitals Australia, so we had four mayors that went along and mm. met with Jenny and 
typically you'll have your CEO and GMs there as well. So we went along and met with Jenny. Now, not every one of those 51 capitals has some form of renewable energy or some impact from renewable energy around there. So again, it's one of those things that you're trying to talk for the group, but mm. also using some local examples. Yeah. But that was a, a really important contact, really important meeting just for Jenny to get an understanding of where we're at because sometimes polys get a bit beat up by renewable energy and they hear the negative side of the people complaining and think that's what everyone out mm. there. And so when mm. we spoke and said, we've got some differences in these cities, but certainly yep. from our res, we're very positive about it and you could see Jenny's eyes almost light up going, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. One question I did put to Jenny, and this is where it's this great concept of being able to sit down and talk to people. Yep. Again, I didn't say, hey, can you give us some money? She said, sure thing. Here's a couple of million dollars for mm. a project, Matt. Have a nice day. But one thing that I did want to understand is that the federal government has a focus on electrifying our nation, mm. changing where we get our power from. That's been a big focus from an election perspective and from a government perspective. But our dealings are typically with the state. The reses mm. are state-based. Mm. And it's not just New South Wales. It has the concept of the res and, and producing power in that way. So I want to know from Jenny where the federal government fits in yep. and where the state government fits in. And how they can maybe support us in regards to infrastructure and, and catering for the people who are going to be here and all the normal sort of stuff and grants and... Yep. All of that, yep. all yep. of that. That's exactly right. And I'll talk... You've got another topic I think you're going to talk to me about or ask me about, mm. about another meeting I have with the department. I'll mm. talk more about it there. But mm. it's that sort of thing where you can have those discussions mm. and find out where they sit. So you know... For example, if there was a funding program or if there's an idea, yeah. you know where to pitch that idea, you know where to talk to that idea about. Yeah. So it's those sort of important meetings that you have to try and really work out where their headspace is yeah. and then you can pitch to that knowing that with a lot more information. Well, I, can imagine, like, I know you're, you're here as part of the, the board for this group, but I'd, I'd imagine you've probably got your double cap on this part of this discussion with her as well, thinking along the lines of, well, hey, listen, we're central to the, the emergence of uh, renewable energy here in Australia. At our zone here, our area here, this is a central part has been allocated and set up here as being one of those great areas of growth. What's the federal government's take on that? Do, do they look at us and go, you guys are really important to us, therefore we should be looking after you a little bit more? The interesting part of that discussion was that the federal government probably is not getting down to individual council areas. Mm. They're really looking at things at a big picture. But some of our experiences, which I'll again talk about more in a little while, mm. some of our experiences can feed into them mm. and help them with their processes in terms of how they can make the whole energy transition work better. So, yes, you're wearing your Dubbo cap. I'm also focused on the fact that I'm representing RCA as well as mm. Dubbo. So you're trying to talk about things at a bigger picture, mm. but having those examples at the local council level absolutely mm. helps and helps with that relationship ongoing. Mm. Well, speaking of which, this sort of uh, may lead into the discussion when you talk about there in regards to uh, Catherine King, the Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government. Now, we've just sort of talked here about the whole need for uh, for extra infrastructure happening here in our region, uh, particularly with the intended and expected growth from the point of view of the, the employees coming into this area to, to cater and to build um, this huge, big energy zone, renewable energy zone. Um, in talking here to um, the minister, Minister King, in regards to it, what is what's her take in regards to all of that? Does she see the need for more infrastructure out this way? Absolutely, but it all comes down to dollars, of course. Yeah. Is she but, prepared to open up the purse? Well, it's interesting because we were told before the meeting that if anyone comes in and pitches for funding, the meeting will be shut down. 
Oh, really? And so we were all forewarned, so no one went in there and said, hey, I've got this project, can you fund that? I wish I could do that with some of the meetings. <laughs> you can't talk about this with me. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things, though, that she did talk about was that gone of the days, she, she, no one mentioned it, but she brought up the topic mm. in general discussion, gone of the days where someone gets some funding based on the colour that their electorate is on a spreadsheet, mm-hmm. obviously, yes. with reference back yes. to the, the last government. The blue, yes. Exactly. Mm. Now, she did say, and, and everyone in the room agreed, she did say that projects should be given money based on merit. Projects should be given money based on the benefit of the community. This is public money we're dealing with. It mm. shouldn't be on you've got the right member in your electorate or we know Billy, he's a good guy, let's give him some money. Yeah. And so that was music to all of our ears because we think from regional capital's perspective, we've got some really good projects yeah. and we stack up with a lot of merit. So if you do it on merit, then that should be good for all of our capital. So that's fantastic. Mm. And for Dubbo as well. Mm. One of the projects that we've got some an application in for at the moment is the Radri Cultural Tourism Centre that we've talked about. Yes. So that's one of the funds that is referenced there. So if I had have said, hey, by the way, we've got an application in for Radri Cultural Tourism, can you give us some money for it? She'd say, get out. Well, she'd either say get out or say that's the end of the meeting. Is that right? Yeah. So, and again, I'm not saying that in a a bad way. I I have a lot of respect for Catherine Mm. because we were told not to talk about that before. And because the last thing you want is people coming in there pitching their individual Mm. ideas Mm. to the minister because you've got the staff, you've got a process there. Mm. One thing I did like, though, and this was based on feedback from Regional Capitals Australia previously over previous years, Mm. we gave the federal government some feedback to say that often it's not worth putting in a funding application because it's too expensive to put the application in, which sounds ridiculous, but some of the mm. requirements they have is, or they're just, they're too onerous. Yes. They need business cases. They need survey data. Mm. They need a whole range of information. It might cost you $100,000 yeah. to put an application. There's a lot of council out there that probably struggle to pay that. Well, and again, for smaller councils, maybe yeah. smaller than regional capitals, yeah. that is a, a process. So they've changed it, and we've participating in this process at the moment, they've changed it so that you now, for this particular program, you put in an expression of interest. Now, the expression of interest is meant to be fairly light, Mm. an overview of the project, without all the detail that really fills out the rest of the project. And the idea is you don't spend a lot of time and money doing the EOI. You submit that. Their staff don't have to spend a lot of time and money going through and investigating those. And they give you a bit of a Stop, go at mm, that point. Mm. We've looked at that EOI based on our guidelines and based on the information you've given us. We don't think it's applicable. Mm. Don't go any further. Yep. Don't or, spend any more money or... That's right. Or we've had a look at it. We think you've got a good chance. If you go and flesh this out, here's the data we need. Go and yeah, do that right. for us. Yep. Then you've got a pretty reasonable chance to get so it. I like that too because they're going to help the councils, I'd suggest, direct them to where they should be spending the money, I suppose, in regards Correct. to what they're looking for in the grants. That's right. And don't waste a bunch of money mm. on putting in grant applications and doing a whole range of things. So, look, it was a good meeting. You, again, got that handle on some of that background information, mm. so that was really mm. important. Good. And I just think it's good to continue on those relationships with those various ministers. We did talk about renewable energy zone a little bit, but it was more about just general infrastructure and making sure we get infrastructure up to the right level. And the airports, we certainly spoke about the airports. That was an important part Mm. of that. And again, I did actually offer to give away our airport. I said, if you want the airport back, because the Commonwealth gave the airport we've got here in Dubbo to Dubbo back around 1970. Yeah, right. And they were all owned by the federal government. And again, they cost money, so they gave Mm. them local councils. Mm. Here you go, Mm. have a nice day. But the regulations and rules around an airport are governed by the federal government, yep. but we have to implement those. So security screening, for example, 
we've got to do that, we've got to pay for that, but the federal government imposes those rules. She didn't take me up on the offer to take the airport back. <laughs> but I said, I'm pretty sure that many councils around right. the state the cost incurred, exactly. would, uh, yeah. would give you back. Now, we do make money out of our airport mm. on an operational level. Mm. So when I say I'll give it back to you, I'm not sure that I'd want to give it back, but the mm. problem is the only way we make money at an operational level is because we get grants for capital expenditure. Mm. If we had to pay for all the maintenance on the runway mm. in particular, that's expensive, all the maintenance on that facility mm. without those capital grants, then we'd be losing money on it. Yeah. So we only can make money out of those capital grants. Now looking through here, uh, you also caught up with... Um the Minister for Regional Development, Local Government and Territories, uh, Chris McBain. So um, what was the conversation with her and, and how does all this connect up with maybe the other two conversations? Well, we didn't actually catch up with Christy in the end. We okay. caught up with yeah, a couple of her staff. Right. And oh, sorry, you saw the staff, my, my yeah, mistake. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and it's often good. I mean, ministers will come along with their staff typically mm. and, and you'll have a discussion. But it's sometimes not so bad if, if the minister's busy to catch up with staff. Now, I've caught up with Christy. I'm actually... Very impressed with some of the things Christy's done in the past. Mm. And I've caught up with her a few times before. I've met her several times. But she wasn't available at the time. But we had a bit of a chat to her staff. But more importantly, and this was a direction from one of the other ministers we spoke to, we also caught up with staff from the Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment and Water. So uh, a couple of staff from Christy's office. That was was good to talk to them and just get a bit of a feel for things that are happening. But we caught up with nine staff from that department. Right. And that was an incredibly important meeting. When we sat around, and again, these are the the staff that are in charge of a whole range of different areas. Mm. So we had various heads within that department of different areas, and I was very impressed. They sat down with I was nine say, of us. So they specifically said, "Look, we need to go and see you guys. This is very important to us as well." Well, no, we we had one of the ministers who said, "You need to go and talk to my department," mm. and then that meeting was arranged because they thought it was important to sit mm. down and talk to some of these people. Mm. What was clear to me was that it's all very new for them. Mm. Some of the renewable energy zones are progressing, but they're trying to work out where they fit in. And that point I made before about mm. where does federal fit in, where does state, you've heard me talk about it before, the process where you get a planning agreement with wind providers, mm. but no planning agreement or no money to the local community through council mm. from solar providers. Mm. So we got a chance to talk to the department, and these are the people that are making not decisions, but they're making the recommendations with all the supporting information through to the ministers who yep. normally say, well, that makes sense to me, assuming it does, let's go forward with that. Mm. You've got to get that data information from somewhere. That's mm. what this was doing. They were doing a fact like gathering exercise. like committees all over the place, aren't they? <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> what, what they actually, I think they learned a lot from us. We mm. learned a bit from them in terms of some of the things that they're doing, but they learned a lot from us around the engagement. One of the things we said around engagement was – Everyone's doing consultation. Each individual proponent has to do consultation as part of their EIS and their submission. Mm. Energy Co is doing consultation. The state government's doing consultation. And now the federal government's going to come and do consultation. Mm. You're going to over-consult people. Absolutely. Maybe you would be better as the federal government, and this is where the federal government can fit in, to do some overarching consultation in an area. And then you can give that comprehensive consultation you have already done to the proponents and the state government to say, We've done this already. You don't need to go each one individually yeah. and wear out everyone's time yeah. from a consultation process. I know that we actually talked a little bit about this in the regards to the overseeing process of, of all of this when it comes to the renewable energy zones around Australia. Like, who actually is 
looking out for everything. Like, who's doing the guiding principle? Who's sort of sitting there going, or which group's sitting there going, all right, it's great to see Western Australia's doing a great job there, New South Wales, you're doing this. Someone's keeping control over the whole lot of it and getting a bit of an understanding of where it's all heading, but federal government doesn't seem to be really taking this sort of initiative at this point in time. Well, my answer to you when you asked that question before was, no, there's no one doing yeah, that. Yeah, that's but right. I think there is a definitely a role to play yeah. for the department because it does need someone to sit over the top of all of that. And yeah. the other thing, so we talked about that. That's yep. a, a thing, and they scribbled down notes hmm. to say, yes, that looks good, like a great good. idea. That's a good thing. The next thing we talked about was the process that we've already talked about with that planning agreement process. You need some sort of framework. Hmm. We've now sent them to the regional council's framework. Oh, really? We've sent them an example of where our framework is used with an agreement that we've got in place, or sorry, uh, agreement we've almost finalised with one particular proponent at the right, moment. Right. And again, I've had some discussions after that meeting, subsequent to that with some of the staff there saying, this is fascinating, this is really good, we want to look at this. So here we have the federal government yeah. using an example of what's happening in our council to try and maybe develop this overarching framework. Mm. That would be fantastic. Mm. I, and I said that to them at the meeting, if you came up with, if you did nothing else, mm. but came up with a consistent set of guidelines yep. to say to the proponents, the state government, to say everyone involved, Here's what you need to be doing with the local councils. That'd yes. be fantastic, and I think they're in a better position to do that than the state government. Oh, I love that! Like it's, that just seems to make so much more sense, and potentially could answer my question in regards to, yeah, <laughs> yeah who's going to look out for all of this in the long run? So that's great. Exactly, and again, I'm impressed that they were sensible enough to say, "Well, if you're already doing it out there mm. and it seems to work, let's grab your example and have a look at that." Mm. But I suspect I'll be talking with some of those people in the department a lot more over the next few months yeah. because they are really looking for ways to make sure they get it right. I would imagine, uh, Matt, when you go to camp, it's a pretty big place, that uh, Parliament House. I, I've been there a couple of times. Uh, unfortunately, I don't seem to have the access to the areas that you would have, but uh, I, I just sort of do the old general sort of tourist thing and I've been through there with a number of kids over the years and families and all that sort of stuff. But I'd imagine once you get into the inner sanctum, let's call it the inner sanctum, you must bump into some pretty cool people. Well, some interesting people, and it's always, you've got to seize those opportunities. Mm. I've got the all-access pass, which is fantastic, so I can go through and, and <laughs> stroll through the corridors. <laughs> so Tom Cruise of you, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a simple thing. So I lined up there, we had a break in our meeting, so mm. I lined up there to just grab a quick bite to eat at the cafeteria, and there's a few different ones there, and, and one of the particular ones mm. there. And there's David Littleproud standing right in front of me. So, of oh, course, yes. he's the leader of the National Party. Yes. He was in Dubbo a month or two ago for an anniversary, 15th anniversary for Mark Coulton. Yep. And I just happened to be sitting opposite him at that dinner. So he's standing there in front of me. Mm. Hey, David. And I haven't got a big enough ego to think that he would immediately recognise me. That's Long right. time knows How are you? And so I reminded him who I was. <laughs> and he said, oh, that's right. I remember sitting opposite you at that dinner. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And so, again, it's just another chance to chat. A few things we talked about on that night. Mm. A bit of a chat about a few things. So you're just making sure that Dubbo's in the front of his mind yep. and you're having that discussion. I did catch up with Mark Colton. I, I actually, I mean, he's our local member. I mm. talk to Mark regularly. I normally don't try and organise a meeting with him in Canberra because I often mm. talk to him out here in Dubbo. Mm. Uh, but he did actually run into me in, in a different cafeteria there. Yep. So had a bit of a chat about a few different things. That was fine. But the other chance meeting I thought was quite good mm. was... Someone actually mentioned to me in our group, they said, oh, I just saw Alan Joyce over All in the right, corner. Oh, right, yes, yeah, the old CEO of Qantas. Correct. Yes. And and I saw, oh, that's good, I'll go and say, g'day, Alan, and they thought I was joking. And I, I jumped up and walked over there. Now, Alan was in Dubbo maybe eight years ago. Yep. 
And there were a few things that were happening at the time. We had John Gissing, who's the head of Qantas Link, right. who was doing me a favour, coming along to a CEO series that organised with the Chamber of Commerce yep. to, to do a talk. Yep. But then on the back of that, Qantas thought it'd be good to bring out their board for a board meeting right. in Dubbo. Right, this and this happened, yes. That's right. Yeah. And they also, at a similar time, were launching the Q400 series into Dubbo. They were doing, right. they were upgrading some of the planes. Yep. So Alan Joyce came out. I met him here in Dubbo yep. and we talked about a range of things there. Yep. Did the Q400 launch, did... The, the board meeting actually went along to their board meeting and, and said good day to a few of their board for one little segment there. Yep. So basically, went over to Alan, how are you going? Remember, you met me in Dubbo many years ago again. <laughs> Remind me never to play Truth didn't. and Dare with you, I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> Put out a dare. Oh, you, you can do it every time. <laughs> I dare to go have a chat to Alan Joyce. Oh, okay, of course you do. <laughs> but, he, but he was incredibly friendly and yeah. I, was, I was very impressed that he was very engaged. It wasn't like, yeah, sure thing, have a nice day. Who are you again? Yep. Very engaged. But more importantly, he said, oh, by the way, why are you there? Hmm. Please meet Vanessa Hudson. Now, Alan's announced his retirement from right. Qantas, and they yes. already announced this is she the new months CEO? ago. Is that the one? She's a new CEO. Oh, so wow. He's yeah, a new yeah, CEO right. having a chat. And yeah. I said, well, Alan brought the board out to Dubbo for a board <laughs> meeting. So, look, I think it would be appropriate for you to bring out the board. I, I love the fact you just take these opportunities and sort of <laughs> throw it straight in there. I love that. Well, I didn't expect a... And I did say this to you, I don't expect you to bring your first board meeting out yeah. to Dubbo, but maybe the maybe second, second or third one. one. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm now going to follow up. I haven't done it yet, but I'm yeah. going to follow up with a, a letter that I'll send through to Alan and Vanessa and say, thanks for coming, uh, yeah, thanks yeah, for, yeah. for saying good day at Parliament House. And by the way, here's your formal invitation out to Dubbo. We'd love to see you board out here. Love to see you speak at a chamber breakfast, yep. for example, that type of thing. But again, you do have to just... Grab those opportunities when well, they're well there. Well done for grabbing them. That's uh, impressive. Yeah. That's and, great. Uh, and who knows what you might get out of those. That's the bottom line. Yes. You never know what you get out of these various random meetings that you might have. That's right. Well, mate, it's uh, time for the Limerick of the Week. So uh, we've got a, gone through a number of things here today. We've well, we talked about bumping into Alan Joyce and the new CEO there of Qantas. We've uh, talked about there the Regional Capitals Australia Board Meeting. Uh, what else we had a little chat about there? Oh, of course, the standing committees. What are you going to talk about? What's going to be your limerick this week? I'm actually finding it tougher and tougher. I think I need to start doing multiple limericks. They take too long. To Combination write. of all of the above. <laughs> well, actually, maybe that's not a bad idea, but you, you haven't got much space in a limerick. <laughs> no, to, that's right. We're to five bring lines. in too many topics. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So it was tough, and it's getting tougher each week because we do seem to be talking. Uh, there's so much happening, and there's yes. lots of things to talk about. But I did really enjoy the judging of. The Rhino, the new Rhino oh, design. Nice so choice. I nice thought, choice. I thought I'd go with that one. So it goes something like this. Dubbo's children, both talented and bright, entered a contest with pure delight. With artistic lines on Rhino designs, their winning artworks will be a splendid sight. Ah, oh, mate. Well done as usual. Congratulations. And I'm sure the kids out there will love that little one as well. Well, folks, that just about wraps up again for another Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, everyone, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dublin Regional Council.